Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, stretching the truce, Israel and Hamas agree to continue their temporary ceasefire for two more days. And a former Israeli diplomat says given the political pressures at play, the truce might last even longer. Power play. Alberta's premier invokes the Sovereignty Act to defy Ottawa's proposed clean electricity regulations, saying it's the only way to ensure her province and its people have the power they need. Uncovering the uncovered. Anishinaabe journalist Tanya Talaga says an 11-year-old's untimely death a month ago should have been front-page news, but wasn't, because too many people think of the suicide of an Indigenous child as normal. How they got everything ironed out. A Toronto laundromat owner catches a woman stealing from his business, but their interaction ends with compassion rather than conflict. The genuine article. Well, adjective. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary has unveiled its honest-to-goodness 100% real word of the year. And she can see both sides. A local tour guide reflects on New York's decision to crack down on souvenir vendors, whose sheer numbers make it hard for people to cross the Brooklyn Bridge. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that looks at a congested bridge and wishes people could just get over it. The pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas has been extended for two more days. Today, Qatar announced the truce extension, which Qatari officials helped broker over the weekend. The White House confirmed that an agreement had been reached, and Hamas says the terms remain the same. That likely means more Israeli hostages will be freed, more Palestinian detainees released, and more aid sent into Gaza. The negotiations around the ceasefire have been tense and complicated, and it's unclear how long it will hold. Alan Pincus, as a former advisor to the Israeli government, we reached him in Tel Aviv. Alon, how is the news of this two-day extension being received in Israel? Well, it's uh, received very positively. I mean, people needed the respite, but it's also received as something that was expected and pretty much predictable. I mean, if you take, if you're notwithstanding the bravado of some Israeli politicians, the prime minister, prime among them, of we will continue and we will attack and we will uh, relaunch and we will resume. As far as the public is concerned, they're probably going to be, or they expect at least, even more extensions. Right. Is the the expectation that we would get to this point mostly because of the, the such good feelings of seeing the Israeli hostages, of people coming home, uh, and the impact that that's had over the past few days? Yeah, well, of course, it depends, Peter, who you ask. I mean, someone involved with the families, obviously and naturally, that's the answer. 
if you ask the average Israeli, he or she are, you know, subject to uh, um, emotional and sentimental storm. And, you know, the hostage issue, the release of some of the hostages, obviously is, is what determines the mood. If you ask people who take a little uh, a broader perspective, they also expect this because they understand that the alternative is an ongoing uh, military operation that will entail a lengthy Israeli presence in Gaza and even people with the most gung-ho attitude toward let's shoot and let's destroy and let's bomb understand viscerally and, and, and cerebrally that that will not and cannot and should not be done. And so from any angle, you support these ceasefires. There are so many calculations to make, whether you're a citizen watching this, the family of somebody who's still being held, somebody who's been released, but also if you're in Benjamin Netanyahu's war cabinet and in his government trying to figure out the political and military calculations, can you just walk us through what, what the calculation being made first by the Israeli government is here? Well, let's begin with this. The devastation of October 7th was on such a scale and of such magnitude that the absolute immediate and and intuitive response was to uh, um, retaliate massively. Mm -hmm. That did not include a clear and coherent political goal. And so 52 days later, Israel still doesn't have a clear and coherent political objective relating to the question of, okay, and then what? What's next? Mm -hmm. The day after? Who's going to control Gaza? And so the government's calculation was more motivated by this, um, let's eradicate Hamas and obliterate Hamas and annihilate Hamas. Let's hit them as much as we can. And maybe then, maybe then start contemplating the next phase. But, you know, you never run a war independently of other factors and outside pressures. And the U.S. has been pressuring Israel to come up with some kind of an idea or some kind of a vision on where this is all headed, which Israel until now has failed to do. Uh, So that's right now the calculus. We need to prove, the government says, we need to prove that we won. In order to prove that we won, we need to uh, uh, degrade Hamas to the point that it is uh, uh, incapacitated politically. The question is, was this reached already or not? I don't know. You know, the the concern at the outset was that a prolonged pause, whether you call it a ceasefire or not, but a prolonged pause would allow Hamas to dig in and retrench. Right. What then is the calculation from Hamas's side? Do we even know? Well, I think, Peter, that, that goes to the difference or the gap in, in both sides' definition of what constitutes a win. Mm-hmm. If for Israel, a win constitutes what I just mentioned, you know, annihilating, eradicating Hamas, For Hamas, uh, which is a non-state terror organization, all they need to prove that they won or to uh, define this campaign as a win is to stand on their feet and wave a flag, even if it's the last flag being waved. And so for them, there is an added incentive uh, for these uh, uh, ceasefires. Israel could obviously change the way the narrative is packaged and say, the idea was to topple Hamas as, a, as an effective political power, and that, to a large extent, has been achieved already. And so even if in the next two, three weeks you will see several uh, surgical operations, um, limited incursions, 
In that respect, all Hamas needs to do is to stay um, alive even after these kind of attacks. And I think uh, militarily they could, they can actually achieve that. Politically, I think I think that Hamas has been devastated. There's no question about that. Right. You know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. This is an extension from mere two days. But if it's working, do you have a sense of how long we might be able to see a pause in these hostilities? Well, yeah, yeah. That's subject to the release of hostages. Right. Uh, don't forget, there are two distinct groups of hostages here. They're the women and the children and the elderly and the let's call it the non-combatants, including the uh, men. But then there's another group. These are IDF soldiers, men and women. It is doubtful that Hamas will negotiate their release as a quid pro quo thing unless there's a grand bargain to be made. Everyone for everyone, meaning all Hamas prisoners for all. Until that happens, we could see a series of truces or pauses, as you called it correctly, interrupted only by limited operations. So I think this is where the war is headed in terms of its dynamics. Well, there's, there's a lot of questions still to come, but alone we, we do have to leave it there. So really appreciate your insight on this today. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Alan Pincus is a former advisor to Israel's foreign ministry and a former Israeli diplomat. He's in Tel Aviv. Tomorrow marks one month since Elena Cecilia Nancy Beardy died, one month during which the 11-year-old girl's suicide has received hardly any coverage at all, and during which her northern Ontario communities of Kingfisher Lake First Nation and Sachigo Lake First Nation were forced to wait two weeks before burying her while her body traveled to and from Toronto for an autopsy. It's a shocking story, and in her column for The Globe and Mail today, Tanya Talaga writes that it should have been a front-page story. Ms. Talaga is an Anishinaabe and Polish journalist and speaker whose mother's family is from Fort William First Nation. We reached her today in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Tanya, what went through your mind when you first heard about Elena Beardy's death? Devastation. You know, it's so awful hearing time and time again that an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old has taken their life by suicide. It's just awful. And it just doesn't seem to stop. What is it that you think keeps this from the front pages of this country? It's a really big question. There's um, almost as if we don't, we don't see the people behind the numbers. We don't see the children behind the numbers. There was a time about five, six, seven years ago, there was a lot more reporting on suicides in the North, and then that seems to have abated. I don't know why that is. Is it the COVID crisis? Is it everything else turned our our gaze away from the fact that we have children in this country that want to, to die and not to live? I mean, 11 years old, like that should be blazing front page news. You know, that to me is just awful and it speaks to a greater and broader mental health crisis one that is very deep in our communities um, in the north but it's also across Canada we have a mental health crisis right now across the country with our youth and this should be 
number one in everybody's minds. You wrote about this young woman who had, you know, this this bright, warm smile. What have you been able to learn about Elena from her, her family and those who knew her? Her family used to call her Princess Elena. And when I was speaking with her great-uncle, Lot Sanoap, he was telling me about her, about how kind she was and how helpful she was. And, you know, there is a photo of her that I've seen, and she has this beautiful smile, she has dark hair, she's got glasses, but she looks like an 11-year-old girl, right? And it's just astounding to me when when you see her face and then you think there is a child that the society should have saved. Suicide is preventable. All suicides are preventable. And the fact that we have so many. I also mentioned in the column that there have been 599 suicides of all ages from 1986 to June 2023 in 33 First Nations communities. That's an astounding number. And it speaks to a massive mental health crisis that we're not getting a handle on. And that's a number that's already dated. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, how awful is that? Yeah. By the time we're talking about it, it's higher. There, there's a detail in the story that I, I that really stood out to me because I didn't understand it, uh, that Elena's family had to wait two weeks to bury her because her body had to be flown to Toronto for an autopsy. How common is that? What's going on there? Well, in Thunder Bay, it's a huge problem. There are not enough services whatsoever, medical services, coroner services, So what happens is that when an autopsy is needed and uh, death by suicide, an 11-year-old girl, an autopsy is needed, she has to be flown to Toronto. That is so far from her home community, which is about 400 kilometers north of Sioux Lookout. And that's not just for Elena. That's for so many of the people that die in our communities or in the city of Thunder Bay. There's just no capacity here, so people have to be flown south and then flown back north. Suicide, as you say, is preventable. It is also, as we know, it can be contagious. What, what are people in Elena's community telling you about their fears for the future in the wake of her death? Sadly, this is something that we've seen before, so this fear is incredibly real. I spoke about in the column girls that I'd written about before, girls that knew each other. This was six years ago, seven girls who took their lives. um, And these girls all were in contact with each other. They were all touching base on social media, even though they were taken to group homes in order to access mental health care in southern Ontario. So they were taken out of their communities. And those girls were actually the subject of uh, my Massey lecture in 2018. Right. And that's the fear. Part of the driver of all of this, and it's something that's so hard to get a handle on, is cyberbullying. And add to that issues such, such as lack of, of consistent mental health supports, lack of the ability for First Nations people and communities to control their healthcare spending dollars. Our community should have the right to be able to hire doctors and nurses and form our own health systems instead of having to rely on a health system that is 
thousands of kilometers away from our communities and not controlled by our people. It's been such a an important thing to shed light on this. I wonder on the the risk of contagion, how do you balance that? That on the one hand, you want to bring attention to these stories, but there are, frankly, unique considerations when reporting on suicide. How how do you deal with that? Mm, Thank you much. I appreciate that. Well, you know, you have to take care, right? You can't be salacious new reporting. Mm. You can't be giving all the details. But it's I think it's important to make people care that these are our children, these are Canada's children. And so Canada needs to know these stories and to know that they're not just numbers, right? That Elena was an 11-year-old girl. She had hopes and dreams and she had a family that loved her. She had a school, you know, she had a community. She had her own things that made her whole. And that light has gone out now. And we have to really come to grips with a society to try and figure out why that is constantly over and over again and just stop it. Well, thank you so much for your work on this and for making time for us today. Miigwech for having me. Thank you. Take care. Tanya Talaga is an Anishinaabe journalist and speaker. We reached her in Thunder Bay, Ontario. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there is help. Call Talk Suicide Canada at People like to talk about how books have the power to transport us, to help us escape our own world and give us a sense of what it might be like to inhabit another, to take us away from the here and now in ways that can transform. All those things are true of all the contenders for last night's Booker Prize, but it's uniquely true for some of their readers. Just ask Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. The British-Iranian dual citizen was freed in March 2022 after spending six years in prison in Iran on espionage charges. In a keynote address at last night's awards ceremony, she said that while she was in prison, contraband books were her salvation. Dr. Thorne by Anthony Trollope was the first book I read. The fact that the story, written in the 19th century, can speak to you across time and space, throwing you into another world hundreds of years later, is phenomenal. This is a story of power, money, and politics was so captivating that whilst reading it, I did not take any notice of the crying and banging on the door going on in the other cells. When I finished the book, I realized there were some blank pages at the back. I had found a pen under the carpet hidden by a previous inmate, but no paper. I started writing things in minute handwriting on those pages, and I spent hours plotting how to stick them together using the honey I had in the cell so that the guards wouldn't notice. I also read War and Peace. My husband and I had watched the TV series together with a cup of coffee on the sofa in London a couple of months before I was arrested. 
It wasn't just Tolstoy's story. The book was a vehicle to take me back to my home in London when I was a free person. Then I moved to the general ward where there was a community of people. It turned out we had a secret library in the ward with the majority of the books hidden in inmates' beds. Through this hidden gem, we circulated the books between those we trusted. We were not willing to let prison control us over what we read at a time that they controlled everything else. One day a cellmate received a book through the post. It was Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, translated into Farsi. Who thought a book banned in Iran could find its way to prison through the post? We hid the cover with the newspapers to avoid being caught on the camera. There was a long waiting list of inmates wanting to read the book, as well as one of the guards. Later, I read The Return by Hisham Mata, a paralyzing story of a man in search of his father, who had disappeared many years earlier in prisons of Gaddafi. The story was so bitter, I had to drag myself to finish the book. But the name of the book kept me going. I wanted to return. British-Iranian translator, writer, and charity worker Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe speaking at last night's Booker Prize Gala. There's a problem on the Brooklyn Bridge, and it's a little hard for me to get across. Well, hard for everyone to get across. A lot of people have complained that it is hard to enjoy the landmark due to the sheer number of vendors selling souvenirs to tourists. City officials are calling not just for an abridgment, but for a total ban on what they describe as peddlers, vendors, hawkers, and hucksters on all the city's bridges. Amber Field describes herself as New York's only good tour guide. She regularly takes visitors on a guided historical tour of the Brooklyn Bridge. We reached her on the bridge between Brooklyn and Manhattan. Amber, how are things looking on the Brooklyn Bridge today? Uh, It's looking pretty good. It's almost sundown. The light is hitting the Manhattan Bridge in a very beautiful way. And uh, there are a lot of cars on here. And uh, a woman winked at me, so I said hi back to her. (laughs) Can you just paint a picture for me of the situation with these vendors on the bridge? Just how packed can it get there? Okay, I'm going to start off by saying, like, I'm a white woman talking about what's going to happen to, like, the safety and, like, money that's going in the pocket of a bunch of brown people. Uh, At the same time, the Brooklyn Bridge, which is, like, about a mile long, uh, after, I think, 2021, we moved the bike lane down where the road is, and it opened up a lot of space, and vendors ended up taking up uh, much of the bridge to the point where I've seen vendors taking up what I would call, like, 40% of the bridge, but also I make up numbers in my head all the time. Uh, it's crowded. I, I've been there and it's kind of uh, it, it, it's very you, you feel almost claustrophobic walking through parts of the bridge. Uh, just for people yeah. who haven't seen this before, like what are the most kind of common souvenirs you're going to see them selling? I mean, if you close your eyes and imagine any New York City souvenirs, they'll be selling it. They sell everything from like T-shirts to plastic trinkets to 
I've seen weed being sold on the bridge. A person does a DJ set for <laughs> tips. Um, and also they do this vandalism thing where if you put locks on the bridge, it's like a good luck thing and people will be selling locks. So it varies from a thing that you'll eventually throw out to a thing that the city has to throw out eventually. <laughs> Uh, and there, there's also this I didn't actually see, but I've heard tell of this that vendors sell these like 360 degree video shoots all playing the same song. Tell me about that. Yeah. Okay. So there's one, if you can hear Alicia Keys playing in the background right now, uh, if I ask people at home to imagine like a, a, a tuna can that's like about three feet wide that spins around that has a stick pointing out of it that has a camera attached to it, it's a device that spins around. So you can take a photo for TikTok or the Instagrams and to have background music, they'll be playing Alicia Keys on there, except for there's like about eight of these little devices on the entire bridge. So like for me as a tour guide going across the bridge, I'm hearing Alicia Keys every 30 seconds and not just that, but it's the same 30 second loop. It must be a little maddening. I am not a fan of it. And I, it's something that I testify to our Department of Transportation for them to start enforcing. And here we get into sort of the crux of the matter. You know, you're there with, with visitors all the time. Do the yeah. number of vendors, does that interfere with people's experience of, of visiting the bridge? I'm going to pivot on that because, okay. like, I think a more important thing to talk about is that, like, all these vendors are very inconvenient. And they are also, like, a safety problem because this bridge has been congested and there has been tramplings on this bridge historically at the same time, vendors have been on this bridge since before it was actually a bridge and just two towers that were had a drawbridge put in between it, a, excuse me, a rope bridge put between it. And what I'm looking at with the bridge being so aggy is the failures of our mayor and a lot of other very powerful people in our city to deal with our migrant crisis. We have a bunch of humans coming into our city and we're not taking care of them. So they're trying to survive in the way that they can. And so now the city is effectively, de facto uh, providing free subsidized retail space for people on the bridge. And everybody like me who depends on this bridge for a career or people who just want to look out in a nice vantage point at sunset as it's setting right now, we have to put up with that because our leadership is lazy and lacks an incredible amount of imagination for how to care about people. You, you mentioned the, the historical aspect. It, it's in, I, I, you know, we follow your TikTok account, so we know you're something of a historian oh, yourself. <laughs> that historic tension over how people use any public facility, in this case a bridge, you know, th this isn't a new thing, is it? No, I mean, the bridge has been witness to giant political fights since before, like, we even started doing any of the underwater digging. Uh, it has cost about a couple of dozen politicians their career and it has made the careers of a couple other politicians uh you know i think like what is political about a bridge is basically it's two it takes two opposite things and unites it together like the thing i'm jumping on top of right now is a suspension bridge it's you got a giant plank and then a bunch of suspension wires holding it up or like it connects brooklyn and manhattan and you know i think it kind of rhymes with like the problems of the bridge that has always been historically there. Like right now I'm a white trans woman in poverty. I'm being pitted against a bunch of like people of color who both of us are trying to survive. And because like people more powerful than us aren't 
doing their job to make sure that everybody's taken care of. We have to have tensions inside of a community, even though I have more in common with this woman who's like texting somebody while like people are trying to buy candy from her than I do with any of the mayors or millionaires who are like withholding funds that could go to the city. Listen, the backstory of how it was built is amazing too. And you do a great job of telling that story, but I think we'll have to save that for another day. So thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Bye. Amber Field is the self-described only good tour guide in New York City. We reached her on the Brooklyn Bridge. For months, Alberta's Sovereignty Act has been in the provincial government's back pocket, waiting to be used at any time as a mechanism to defy the federal government. And today, that mechanism was activated. This afternoon, Premier Danielle Smith introduced a resolution calling on provincial entities to refrain from enforcing or cooperating with the implementation of Ottawa's clean electricity regulations. We developed this legislation to shield the province from federal intrusions, and we're using it now because the consequences of this particular overreach would be so severe. Alberta will bear the largest share of the expenses required to meet these absurd targets, and consumers and businesses will see their bills soar. If the federal government has its way, many people will be left without electricity that they can pay for on a power grid that will fall short or even fail in a typical Alberta winter or summer. We refuse to go along with this plan. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith speaking today. Jason Markasoff is a writer-producer for CBC Calgary. Jason, today, before this resolution was introduced, uh, you referred to it as, quote, a jurisdictional force field against Ottawa's green electricity rules, end quote. So just how powerful a force field is it going to be? It's really confusing and it's really not clear. What the provincial government said was they're having the legislature declare that this federal uh, initiative is unconstitutional. Yes, it's true. They are not giving themselves court powers, but they are declaring uh, this unconstitutional in their opinion. What the motion says is any government agency and the government will refuse to enforce or recognize the constitutional validity of the federal initiative to the legal extent legally permissible, it says, uh, which it could probably do regardless uh, whether this was passed or not. The other thing they are going to do, and this is new, uh, kind of unusual from an Alberta that has a private sector electricity market is they are looking to create a crown corporation to potentially commission, build and buy natural gas plants and other um, power plants uh, that would operate somehow outside of these clean electricity regulations. You mentioned the unconstitutional part of it. It says the the federal initiative is unconstitutional. And if I've got it right, it's because it says the generation and production of electrical energy falls under provincial jurisdiction. But that's in some dispute, isn't it? What what do legal experts say about that argument? That's right. Legal experts, they are not declaring this unconstitutional. Um, You know, you would hope that the federal government in drafting regulations would not brazenly be acting outside of its jurisdiction, uh, ability to regulate electricity generation. They do have the ability to regulate the environment and uh, toxins and harmful matters. Um, So one of the things they are doing is using the idea that carbon emissions are toxic themselves, are harmful to the environment, and they are regulating those. And there will be some questions, certainly, uh, from many people on whether they can do that, and that would be a contested in court. Of course, you can only test something in court. 
when it's in regulation. Right now, these are in draft regulations. So while Danielle Smith and the Alberta government want to declare them unconstitutional, um, there's nothing really to test at this point in a court of law. Now, uh, the other sort of side of the argument here is that the government says that it, by shifting away from natural gas, that Albertans are going to see these soaring energy prices. There's going to be an increase in brownouts and blackouts in the middle of the summer or the dead of the winter. How justified is that as a fear? A few months ago, the Alberta Electricity System Operator, uh, it's a crown agency uh, that would be, I guess, subject to this uh, Sovereignty Act regulation, uh, should it uh, be enacted, uh, they said that they've looked at the proposals and the rules that Ottawa has proposed, and they said it can't be done with current technology, with uh, projected uh, trends in solar, wind, and other uh, developments, that we would be risking blackouts in Alberta in uh, certain periods, and that is of great concern. We have a lot of companies who produce uh, natural gas and other electricity in Alberta saying that they could maybe go net zero by 2040s, uh, maybe by 2050, but not by 2035. Uh, There are a number of uh, economists and experts out there who, while they support the net zero goals, um, say that some of what Otto is proposing is going to be very hard for any government, no matter how well-meaning, to enforce. Now, Alberta has, despite declaring these unconstitutional and putting this, we're not going to recognize this as valid, are still at the negotiating table on some of these things. Um, But this certainly is a provocative thing to place on that table. Walk me through the the Crown Corporation part of this. Like, what, what is it supposed to accomplish in the Premier's eyes? This is where things get unclear. Um, there's a lot unclear about this, and uh, we're, we're just unfolding this. But Danielle Smith uh, is worried that some some natural gas plants, especially some of the older ones, uh, would be barred uh, starting in 2035 under the clean electricity regulation. So one of the things that she's exploring uh, with the idea of this Crown Corporation, which, again, is just an idea, uh, is that it would buy up some uh, some natural gas plants that are no longer allowed under these regulations and act and operate them as though the clean electricity regulations don't exist. Um, she's also musing in this about building and commissioning some new natural gas plants that might not necessarily be allowed under these, uh, these clean electricity regulations. Um, it's not immediately clear why a crown corporation would be able to do things that private sector companies are not. Of course, she talks about this eventually heading to a court of law, uh, where it will be a judge, not a politician's determination about whether or not what Ottawa wants to do is constitutional or not. Looming over all of this has been the suggestion that there's potential legal risks of not meeting these 2035 targets, that, uh, you know, private companies and members of them might face potential jail time. Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gibo has noted that, you know, Ottawa has only issued warnings, compliance orders, or in some cases, fines under the 1999 Environmental Protection Act. When you zoom out and you look at that aspect of it, what we heard today, where we're sort of headed in all this, how much of what we're seeing, Jason, is is political theater? Alberta has uh, been a source of spicy politics uh, between it itself and Ottawa for many decades, and Danielle Smith has certainly ratcheted some of that up with her Sovereignty Act. Uh, it is no coincidence that this occurs a few days before both Danielle Smith and Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo go to Dubai for the uh, COP28 environmental conference where 
Stephen Gilbo will be promoting the uh, net zero by 2035 uh, proposals, which are you know, G7-wide right. uh, commitment, as Danielle Smith will also be there um, saying that it's her intention to continue to produce and burn uh, fossil fuels as an energy source uh, with some abatements, with some improvements toward 2050, but we would be standing firmly in the way of uh, what Stephen Gilbo and the federal government want to do. All right. Now, a wild day as always. We appreciate your analysis. No problem. Jason Markasoff is a writer-producer for CBC Calgary. We reached him in Calgary. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a peculiar and stressful year which of course is a thing you could say at the end of every year, but it's really true this year. We've had all kinds of environmental catastrophes, plus an ongoing existential crisis over artificial intelligence. Donald Trump is back on the campaign trail when he isn't in court. And a movie about a 64-year-old doll was a colossal box office hit and hailed as a contemporary feminist classic. With all of that in mind, it was impossible to predict what Merriam-Webster's dictionary's word of the year might be. But we reached someone who agreed to tell us, the dictionary's editor-at-large, Peter Sokolowski, in Springfield, Massachusetts. So, Peter, give it to me. What's the word of 2023? Merriam-Webster's word of the year for 2023 is authentic. Ooh. All right. Before we get into the whys and the hows, just give us the dictionary meaning. Uh, We um, have a definition that means uh, not false or imitation. And those are given as synonyms of the words real and actual. And we also have another meaning, which is true to one's own personality, spirit, or character. Two great meanings for the word authentic. And what is it about that word? Why do you think it was looked up so much this year? Well, I think we are experiencing a kind of crisis of authenticity in the broader culture, and that connects to a bunch of different things. On the one hand, we have heard a lot about artificial intelligence, AI, chat, GPT. Um, Can we trust someone's homework? Can we believe our own eyes? Uh, But also the uh, recent actor's strike where they were uh, concerned about their likenesses or image. And so what we realize is this has been on our minds collectively for quite a long time. But authenticity also connects to identity. And there are lots of words that are often found next to each other, like authentic cuisine, authentic Mm. self authentic voice. And it just seems that we value something more when it is put into question in the way that authenticity has been in recent years. And needless to say, we've gone through a period where uh, we hear about fake news or uh, alternative facts. Um, So I think we're all kind of, in a way, more alert to the authentic and to the truth. I wonder why people look it up, though, right? You know, it's not like the word has a bunch of counterindications. You're like, I, I wonder what it is about authentic that they get onto the uh, onto the site and look it up. What is it that's drawing people to look up this word? 
Well, you, you've hit upon an important point. It's something that we've learned and that I've learned personally from watching the dictionary data over the years, because some lookups are fairly surprising, like this one. <laughs> um, and in point of fact, uh, words that are um, abstract and that have classical roots tend to have a high number of lookups on a daily basis. So to take other examples, the words integrity or ubiquitous or paradigm, those are words that are looked up quite a lot, not for spelling, we presume, but for nuance of meaning. And authentic is one of these. It's not a word that had an individual story attached to it for a huge spike, like the words vaccine or pandemic in recent years for very obvious reasons. Uh, what we connect with authentic is a broader, uh, if you will, zeitgeist, a broader idea of if, if something is put into question, it's something that is worth exploring. And our curiosity leads us to the dictionary. It, it's a funny thing, the human brain, isn't it? I mean, like when we spoke, <laughs> we spoke to you back in 2016. And back then, the word of the year was surreal. Last year, mm -hmm. it was gaslighting. What does it say to you, like as you look at that sort of evolution of the thing people have been thinking about, what does that tell us about the time we're living in? Absolutely. I mean, these are these are words that express uh, a crisis of belief, a crisis of truth, you know, a crisis of authenticity. That is uh, just simply the place that we're in as a culture. But what's you know encouraging to me is that people do turn to the dictionary, that words matter and that people are paying attention. Interesting. What what were the other words then that were were sort of pushing? You know, what, what, who was who got runner up to this? Sure. I mean, uh, another related word is the word dystopian, and that's often used in the context of artificial intelligence and its consequences for policy, for example. But this is an interesting word because it connects with whether we believe our own eyes and our own ears, but also. This is a word that connects to uh, stories of climate change and the fires right. and the smoke in, in Canada and in Hawaii. But oddly, this is also a word that we have uh, many connections with entertainment and uh, dystopian series. And, you know, like The Last of Us that was early this year that got a huge amount of critical attention and many think pieces about a dystopian future. So this is an odd word because it's very serious, but it also represents a kind of entertainment category. One of our producers said their favorite word, indict, was near the top mm. of the list. Is that true? Yes. Well, indict, of course, connects to a specific story. We have a former president <laughs> who has been um, indicted a number of times, and there are uh, trials ongoing, as you know. But, of course, indict also has that very unusual silent C. Um, and so there could be good reasons for spelling to look it up as well. And is the silent C, it, it, it has something to do with, like, they, they reverse engineered a Latin root to the word? Has <laughs> I got that right? That's exactly right. I mean, English borrowed a lot of words from French, and this is one of them. All, all of our legal vocabulary comes from French because of the Norman conquest. It's a long human history, but the, you know, the Normans imposed their system of laws. And so words like judge and jury and arraign and acquit, they're all French words. Indict is one of those words. And we pronounce it indict because it's very similar to the way it was pronounced in French. However, in the Renaissance, there was this reawakening, this rebirth of a connection to the Latin roots of many words, and scholars found that indict originally came from indicare, um, the, the same word that gave us to indicate, um, and so that C was present. So they popped the C back in, but that was 400 years after <laughs> after we had been used to pronouncing the word without the C. So that's also, by the way, why we have a silent B in the word doubt. That's right. Uh, and and uh, were there any fun ones in there, the, the, something to bring us a little relief in the, the language world? <laughs> 
Yeah, there are always uh, words from entertainment that spark interest. Uh, the word riz, R-I-Z-Z, it's a new word to me. It means romantic appeal or charm. It's kind of used like the word charisma, and some people think it actually is a shortened form of the word charisma because it has that sound in it. The other one that's kind of fun is EGOT, E-G-O-T, which stands for Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. And that refers to a person who has achieved the uh, distinction of winning each of those four awards. Well, I hope you win an award for this. This has been great fun. And like I say, we look forward to this day every year. It's a big day at shows like this. Well, thank you. It's a treat to talk to you. Take good care. Thank you. Peter Sokolowski is the editor-at-large of Merriam-Webster Dictionary. He's in Springfield, Massachusetts. When Alex Winch checked his security footage recently, what he saw dismayed him. The tape showed a woman walking into his Toronto laundromat, removing someone else's sweaters from a machine, and walking out. So when Mr. Winch saw the same woman again, he confronted her. But the conversation didn't go quite as he expected. Well, I asked her why she had taken the sweaters. There was no disputing that she had. Her immediate response was, because I'm effing freezing. And I asked her, well, what about the woman whose sweaters you've taken? And her response, she had seen the customer um, looking for her sweaters as she, the customer approached the dryer. And the response from the person who had taken the sweaters was, well, she's got a home and I'm homeless. What did you think in that moment? What a moral dilemma. How cold do you have to be to justify stealing a sweater, and how do you use a laundromat and have your sweater stolen? There's no right answer in that, and we're just at the start of cold season. It's going to get colder from here. What has your response been? Well, I walked with the woman who had taken the sweaters. I stepped out of my laundromat, and we walked together for four or five blocks, and it was clear I was not going to recover my customers' sweaters. In hindsight, I wish I had had a, a sweater or a, a hoodie or something to give her. And I realized that I have a coat on my hook at home that I could have given her, but how to make that happen? Mm. So I put up a coat rack outside my, my shop where people can donate a coat um, people in the middle of the night who are cold can pick up a coat. There's no um, hours because the, the greatest need is the middle of the night when it's the coldest and darkest and dampest and most doors are locked and most coats and comfort are unavailable. I know many people have stepped forward to donate to that coat rack. What does it tell you about your community? It's a blessing. It's a blessing that we have people who are willing to, uh, not for praise or public recognition, just go into their closet and pull out a coat and put it anonymously on a rack. It's a, a blessing that we live in in such a community. 
Alex Winch is the owner of Beach Solar Laundromat in Toronto. He was speaking with David Common, host of Metro Morning. When COP28 kicks off in Dubai later this week, fossil fuels will be at the top of the agenda, as in phasing them out. But apparently, the United Arab Emirates saw the UN conference as the perfect place to phase more oil and gas deals in. The BBC, working alongside independent journalists at the Centre for Climate Reporting, got hold of documents that revealed the host country planned to use the climate talks to pitch oil and gas deals to 27 foreign governments, including Canada's and that the UAE's team had compiled talking points for this year's COP28 president. Justin Rollat is the BBC's climate editor. We reached him in London. Justin, can you give us some examples of some of these talking points that you were able to get your hands on? So, for example, with China, they say um, they, the Adnot, the giant uh, UAE's giant uh, state oil company, um, would like to jointly assess opportunities for liquefied natural gas in Mozambique, uh, Canada, and Australia. Um, then they say, for example, uh, in, a, in a meeting planned with the Brazilian foreign minister, they talk about wanting to uh, discuss a multi-billion dollar purchase of Latin America's largest uh, petrochemicals company, oil and gas processing company. Um, they say there, it's quite explicit, they say, ask for a meeting or a phone call with the relevant minister. And then, for example, in Colombia, they say, um, you know, Adnoc, the uh, oil, the gas, the oil company, um, is ready to help Colombia develop its fossil fuel resources. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, they're very clear. And there's uh, 15 countries in which there are, there are uh, business associated with fossil fuels is discussed. 27 countries where in total, so the other countries, about 20 countries, there's uh, business suggested, suggested discussions about business with the um, state renewables company, a company called Mazda. And not to be too obtuse about this, but these are supposed to be meetings about fighting climate change, right? They, you know, and when you talk to people uh, in the UN about what the process is, they say, look, the, the presidency, the, the COP president and his team are custodians of an ongoing process. Yeah, it's COP28. This is the 28th conference. It's actually been going on for 29 years. And it's an ongoing process designed to bring the world together with, as you say, this objective of driving down carbon emissions. And uh, I mean, the UN Secretary General commented on this today. He said he found it astonishing to do their own effectively, do their own side deals that might drive up emissions. And yet, I mean, it was always a little bit weird that the UAE would hold the presidency of this in particular. So can we just zoom out for a second here and tell us who is Sultan El-Jabr, this year's president of the of COP28? So he is the head of the state oil company. He's the head of the, head of the renewables company. He's actually the head of all sorts of other um, important uh, UAE institutions as well. Um, and uh, And yeah, so he's been entrusted by the government of the UAE to head up the COP process, this UN climate conference that's happening in Dubai and will end uh, on the 12th. Well, it probably won't end on the 12th. They almost always run over 12th of December, so two weeks time. Right. 
The idea of a, 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 a state oil and gas CEO heading up really the world's most important climate talks, it, it is something of an oxymoron. Uh, what was the pitch in the first place as to how he could be the right person for that? Well, that's the decision of the country that's running. They appoint. So the country that's 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 hosting the COP appoints the president. So that's not in the gift of the UN. Right. I would. I found myself defending using you know the the um, UAE's defence of its its presidency um, to defend this the choice of the UAE because what they said was, listen, look, you know, yeah, you know, oil companies are part of the problem. They produce the uh, the the oil that creates the carbon emissions. But you guys all burn the oil. You know, you're all you're all responsible as well. This isn't us on our own. This is a compact that we have globally between, you know, oil producers, consumers and governments that say, you know, this kind of trade is fine. So, you know, it's not illegal to sell oil. So why should we be barred? In fact, they said, look, you know, we really should be at the table because you can't solve the problem without talking to us. And I actually thought there was force in that argument. I mean, I have to say, you know, a lot of um, activists and, you know, campaigning organizations said the conflict of interest is irreconcilable. You know, I, I said, let's wait and see how they do. And I have to say, the evidence we've collected <laughs> does make those criticisms of a conflict of interest far more pointed today, I think. And and yet they made those arguments quite forcefully that, that there is no climate solution without the oil producers of the world and oil producing companies, countries of the world. Um we have these talking points that you were able to to report on. How how has the UAE, how has Sultan Al Jaber responded to your reporting? Do they deny any of this? This is so, this is really interesting. So we obviously sent them a huge kind of right of reply letter where we documented everything we had and said what happened. Did you? We said use meetings arranged as part of the COP process to try and do fossil fuel deals, and they said private meetings are private. We're not going to comment. So that is not a denial. And then they go on to say, look, where, you know, Dr. Jabbar has been you know, tireless in his efforts to get a transformational outcome at COP28 and to suggest any different would, and I quote, be a distraction. And that also is not a denial. And have any of the other countries involved confirmed that some meetings might have taken place? Has Canada, for example, so shot them down? As I, I think Canada is one. There's 12 countries that got back and said that either they didn't have meetings or there weren't commercial discussions in the right. meetings they had. And I'm almost certain Canada is one of those. And the rest, we don't know. We certainly know of one where they followed up on a commercial proposition, a fossil fuel deal that was suggested in one of these meetings. If this is the kind of thing that's coming up before we've even started COP28, what hope is there of, of countries making any real concrete deal here? Well, look, I mean, you know, yes, I mean, it does certainly raise questions, doesn't it? One hopes that because it's so obviously in the world's interests to do something about this really serious existential threat that we all, the entire world community faces, you hope that they would put aside this and say, well, we're going to get an ambitious outcome anyway. And just on that, I think we should just remember how extraordinary the COP process is, the fact that we can convene all the countries in the world in a single meeting. We've got, you know, obviously the Pope's coming, King Charles III, 167 other world leaders. We're going to have, a, there'll be representatives from, from Palestine and, and Israel there sitting together in the same room, trying to solve a bigger issue that the whole world faces. And the fact that still happens shows how invested, frankly, 
the countries of the world are, how they understand this is a problem we need to tackle. And I guess I'm saying we need to hold on to that thought, the thought that they get it and they know there's a serious problem we need to tackle and hope that that ultimately decides, drives the judgment, the decisions that are made in Dubai. Fair point. And and listen, great reporting on this. And, and thank you so much for making the time to speak with us on this today. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for speaking to me. Cheers. Justin Rollout is the BBC's climate editor. He's in London. New Zealand's generational smoking ban was the first of its kind. The law prohibited anyone born after 2008 from legally buying cigarettes, and it was immediately heralded as a win for public health, prompting other countries to propose similar legislation. But a year later, that ban has been tossed aside before it could come into effect, like a cigarette butt at a car window. The decision was announced after the country's new prime minister, Christopher Luxon, was sworn into office on Monday. He said the shock reversal was part of a broader plan to improve the economy. Lisa Tamoringa is the chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa in New Zealand. We reached her in Dunedin. Lisa, the new prime minister hadn't made this reversal a part of his campaign. So what was it like to hear the news that the ban would be scrapped? You know, on Friday, I don't think any of us in the public health sector could believe it. It was a real kick to the to the guts um, and a total surprise. Just before we get into all everything that will happen now, just go back to the the origins of this ban itself. What did you what did you hope it would accomplish? Okay, so we passed this legislation in 2022, which was an amendment to our existing smoke-free laws. And this legislation was designed to reduce the addictiveness and demand for tobacco and ultimately to save up to 5,000 lives that are lost every year prematurely, directly as a result of smoking. Um, So the legislation uh, was really world groundbreaking, I guess, and the first of its type in the world. Um, So one of the most important measures was denicotinization. So mandating that the nicotine levels in tobacco products had to be below a certain level by 2025 um, so that they would no longer be addictive. The second part was reducing the number of outlets in New Zealand that are legally allowed to sell tobacco products. And the third one was this idea of a smoke-free generation. So it would be illegal to sell tobacco products to anyone born after the 1st of January 2009. Even after they had reached the age of what we call the age of majority, adulthood. Exactly. Uh, and your organization, if I've got this right, has has pointed out the, the specific harms of smoking on Maori populations. W- what do you fear will happen? We already have a high level of health inequities uh, experienced by our Māori population in New Zealand in much the same way that Indigenous people in Canada, you know, face greater burdens of health loss. So the smoking rates amongst our Māori community, although they have dropped substantially, as they have in the whole population, they still remain twice as high as rates in the general population. The smoke-free legislation 
had the potential to make a, have a much greater positive impact on our Māori community. Um, so its repeal is, you know, just really disappointing. My own grandmother, my Māori grandmother, died at the age of 63 as a consequence of smoking addiction. Hmm. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon had said that reversing this legislation was, was part of a larger plan to uh, prioritize improving New Zealand's economy. It, basically, that taxes on cigarettes would help fund tax cuts. Have I got that right? Yes, you have. It sounds crazy, but that is right. Taxes on cigarettes are not to generate revenue for the country. Taxes on cigarettes have been put in place to make smoking less appealing. And those taxes should go directly into smoking prevention and healthcare costs directly related to smoking. This government wants to use those taxes, and these are really super high taxes, way larger than on anything else. They want to use those that tax revenue to pay for tax cuts. And we know that the poor in our country, you know, have higher smoking rates. This is a very addictive product, very hard to get off. And there are lots of, you know, social conditions which make it a lot harder for the less well-off to break that addiction. And now they're going to be funding tax cuts for wealthier people because we know that our wealthier population are going to benefit more from the tax cuts proposed by our government. How does that make you feel? So it's just immoral. (laughs) I find it reprehensible and unbelievable that they are happy to have people die of a preventable cause to fund tax cuts. Now, the tax cuts is one side of it. The other, uh, the government says, is the black market, that by, uh, you know, this reversal will prevent the black market from emerging. What do you think about that? Oh, that's just rubbish. That's a tobacco industry line um, that's been pushed for a long, long time and actually it's never panned out to be true. In fact, this legislation was designed to reduce demand for tobacco by breaking addiction. So... Demand for a black market would fall with this legislation, not grow. Is it really the role of the state, though, to tell adults? Like, it's one thing to say this to kids, but to to grown adults that, no, you can't make this decision because you're born after a certain year? This is one of the most highly addictive substances in the world, up there with heroin, and it kills many, many or ends many, many lives prematurely in quite horrible ways, you know, if you think of the impacts of lung cancer. It's the government's responsibility to protect us from harmful things. You know, we've banned leaded petrol because it's not healthy um, for people. Um, So I I do believe the government needs to step in in some cases. Also, we've got to think that the tobacco industry has had decades of using every trick in the book to keep people hooked to grow their products, to mislead, (laughs) to influence governments, to allow them to keep selling this dangerous products. I'd like you to just sort of scale out the implications of this reversal, if you could. You know, like the UK, for example, had proposed a generational smoking ban in October. What, What message do you think this sends to other countries who were maybe considering a similar move? I hope these other countries, you know, don't back down. I hope they see our government for being the cowards or libertarian ideologues that they are and stick to their guns. Well, listen, we have to leave it there, but really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this today. Thank you. That was Lisa Tamoringa, the chair of Health Coalition Aotearoa in New Zealand. 
we reached her in Dunedin. On Thursday, we brought you the sad or great news of the surprising end of Happy Tree. Happy Tree, of course, is the cheerful or sinister gigantic animatronic Christmas tree whose tenure at a St. John's Mall has come to an abrupt end despite his successful years of fundraising for charity with his annual Happy Tree campaign. And just as I fear and strongly suspect will happen to me one day, he has been replaced by a virtual talking elf. Some might argue that given his beloved or befeared presence, that the termination was without cause. Even if you consider the enormous googly eyes that seemed to follow you everywhere you went, and the tree's hauntingly ambiguous grin. Clearly, even amid all the polar-themed decorations of the Christmas season, Happy Tree was especially polarizing, unless you're Sophie Harrington. The longtime Happy Tree champion told Chrissy Holmes, host of the St. John's Morning Show, how she got the news. You know, I just found out on social media. It was it was pretty devastating um, um, to to find out that way. But uh, uh, yeah. So what what did happy mean to you? So as someone, I'm admittedly not a very Christmassy person. It's it's uh, he was so he was a bit of a kindred spirit for me. I think he's a, you know he was. He was admittedly not that happy looking. Uh, he was a little curmudgeon uh, pretty tired most of the time. But, you know, I think deep down he had a heart of gold and wanted to do, to do some good for the community. So um, I, I kind of like that. I kind of like that at a, a time of year when everything was very polished and organized and clean. Uh, we had something, um, you know, just a little off kilter that that represented the, the this time of year as well. Okay, so I mean, just to help us understand how why you would characterize happy as uh, maybe not the happiest Christmas tree out there. <laughs> like, what was it? Like, I mean, just let's get inside this, explore do I, do I this a little. Exp- <laughs> yeah, have you guys seen him? Like, he wasn't overly happy looking. You know, he was he was a little odd, um, and I think that was his appeal. Is that you know. Um, uh, a great sense of nostalgia about him, you know, because he's been around for a while and, 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 uh, you know, had kind of taken many different forms. So, um, it's, it's nice to have things that aren't always, you know, I don't mean to, to sound too curmudgeon but, you know, does everything need to be a digital screen these days? There was something kind of nice that, that you know, inspired imagination and, 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 uh, I think, you know, um, a little bit of smiles on people's faces. Um, but, you know, whether it's Happy or the, or the New Elf, um, it is an incredibly worthy cause as, 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 as much as I'm being tongue-in-cheek about, uh, tongue-in-cheek about it all. Uh, I am very sad about my best friend, Happy, but just, you know, encourage all the listeners to, to make a donation to Happy. In, in Happy's memory, I think that's the best way to, to honor him and his giant eyeballs and, and um, just um, Pearson look that he gave into your heart. That was Sophie Harrington mourning her recently axed seasonal pal, Happy Tree. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show on the web at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Armstrong. 
And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.